He who controls the past controls the future. He who controls the present controls the past. George Orwell, 1984. Hello, everyone. This is Richard Beattie, and today on Useful to God, Dr. James Spencer and I will be inviting you into a conversation about living differently than how the world expects us to live. It's a different lifestyle. It's looking at history not so much as through nostalgia. It's coming face-to-face with our present situations and facing history objectively and the future without distraction. That's coming up on Useful to God. For the Christian mind to be truly Christian, there must be room left to challenge systems and structures that would sustain distorted or incomplete accounts of the Christian community's imagined social existence together. James, you wrote that in your book, Christian Thinking. How does that relate to Christian resistance and the concept of resisting the cultural pressures of the world? Well, I think, you know, a couple of ways. Uh, so, uh, number one, we, we have to realize that the um, systems and structures around us, we often think of them as ordained by God, particularly when we think about governmental structures. Governmental structures are ordained by God. But at the same time, um, we exist within a world that has to just get along somehow. So we have economic structures, we have political structures, um, we have all these different sort of systems that we interact with that begin to feel a little bit more uh, ubiquitous or or ever-present, sort of inevitable, uh, than they might actually be. And so what we really want to do as Christians is we want to make sure that there's this room left to challenge those systems and structures, and to think Christianly about it is just this. Here's what I would ultimately say that I'm looking for people to do is to remember that even if we're constrained by the systems structures of the world, God isn't constrained by those same systems and structures. And so when we're looking out at what's going on in the world, God is not concerned. He's not constrained. He's not uh, He's not limited by anything that we see in the same ways that we are. And so uh, as we put our trust and faith in him, we then come to resist the inevitability of these structures. We can begin to craft different actions and practices within them that simply the, those systems and structures wouldn't ordinarily allow. And that's what that's that's the part of Christian resistance that I think is probably the most creative and fun for Christians is that as we trust God, we get to tie into uh, everything that he can do as opposed to settling for what we can do. So how do we know? Uh, this is this is Orwell again. How do we know that two and two make four, or that the force of gravity works, or that the past is unchangeable? If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, and if the mind itself is controllable, what then? Is this akin to Pilate asking Jesus what is truth, and how do we answer? Yeah, so I think within the world that Orwell creates in 1984, what you have is a totalitarian regime that is uh, diligent at controlling the thoughts of people. They come up with their own language to make sure that um, certain concepts are no longer really even vocalizable. Um, and they they go through a systematic act of eliminating uh, different versions of the past that aren't supporting their present narrative. And so it's, you know, Orwell obviously creates sort of this fantastic environment where um, there's there's a group of people who are very much controlling the sort of information that that uh, that the people are getting. 
And so I think to some degree it is akin to Pilate asking Jesus, you know, what is truth? Because truth is really at the root of all of this. Um, we have to realize that there is a truth about the world. And I really start with that fundamental truth being that God is active and present in the world with us. And that every time we see a story that denies or pushes God to the margins, that is a story that is presenting uh, the world in a false manner. I think we have to get out of sometimes this idea of thinking in just black and white terms, true or false, right? There can be a lot of truth in a narrative that ultimately leads us in a false direction or leads us away from God being the center and most important, most relevant actor and factor in all that we do. And so in 1984, what George Orwell ultimately does is he creates this, this sort of uh, totalitarian regime that is going to craft the people that they want to have as part of their regime. And as Christians, you know, we're we're not always under those types of regimes. I don't think that we're even close to anything that like Orwell pictured necessarily. But we do have influences and forces that uh, cause us to look away from God, from Christ, being in the center of our vision, being that most relevant actor and factor in all situations. And as those influences pull our eyes away from, from God and Christ, we are missing out, I think, on what God could really do through us if we remained focused on him and responded to him within the situations we face, as opposed to responding to the situations we face. Yeah, and I think uh, our listeners would probably identify with that. But when you think about those glimpses of those times where you really, you really can see God's will, and you can see that you are in God's will, uh, those are those are so hard to really, uh, really fathom sometimes. But then all of a sudden you catch a glimpse of that, um, and uh, I, I know there's probably a, a a phenomenon about that. I, I like to think of it like this. Um, when I teach this in class, what I usually ask students to do is um, picture yourself uh, living at the bottom of a well. And you've lived at the bottom of this well forever. And, you know, you can infer true things about the world by looking up out of the well. Right. You can see the sky above you. You maybe see a, a bird or two fly by. You might see things that are blown across the top of the well. Some things might even fall into the well. And there's a way that as we're looking through that sort of narrow tunnel, the well, we can infer true things about the world. But we our our construction of a whole picture of the world is always going to be pretty limited because our vision is just funneled through the the narrow opening of the well. And that is basically how I think we generally see the world. This is why we want, you know, and we we need to be focused on understanding biblical revelation, deeply understanding who God is, developing an experiential knowledge of God by obeying him day in and day out. Because as we do that, what I think happens is that our, our vision, our the, you know, let's say the opening of our well grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're able to sort of manipulate our vision and see things from different perspectives and really understand how and what God is doing. And part of that is that we not only are people of the book, but we're people of the body. And so we have to interact with other members of the body of Christ and really understand their perspective because we have 
a, a vested interest in, in understanding and being part of that body, contributing to it, and benefiting from it. I love that uh, analogy, and uh, I, I, uh, I probably have uh, felt that. I, I don't know if that's a, a dream or, uh, <laughs> or uh, whatever it, whatever it is. But uh, you do know that there's this this shroud that you're not seeing the the full picture, and uh, that is is kind of like the distorted thinking uh, premise. Uh, you know, I'm I'm reminded that Jesus taught in parables. Uh, it was quite the opposite of double or parallel speaking, or messaging, uh, those who could understand the deeper meaning could hear the voice of God. The disciples did not come to understand this easily, and uh, and neither can we. Uh, we're cursed with, with distorted thinking, so instead of expanding our perspective, we have to narrow it. So is 1984 a modern-day parable for us? What I think— uh... Orwell really pulls off in 1984. I don't know that I would call it a modern day parable, but what I what I think he's doing is he is highlighting a lot of um, different dynamics that we deal with as we live in the world, and I think he is sort of amping up those dynamics to a you know a, a degree, right? For you know probably for some level of entertainment purposes, but also just to get the point across is that these things are happening to us um, in most of our daily lives. There's an erosion of the way that we want to think, and we're we're influenced by the outside world. Now, I don't think that Orwell was writing from a Christian perspective, um, but what I, what I see in 1984 is this idea that um, we are not strictly individuals who are isolated from everything else that is going on. We are a part of the world and thus influenced by the world. And as we think about Christian resistance, um, the way I've been describing people, what I mean by Christian resistance is um, the picture of a dam holding back water. And um, the reason I like that is there's this immense pressure on the dam, right? But it's not usually sort of a, a, you know, a waves crashing on the dam sort of pressure. It's more of a passive pressure. It's just always there. The water's always there. And the dam has to retain its boundary. It has to retain its shape. It has to retain its boundary. And uh, and that's how I see Christian resistance really happening. It's us holding back the water, retaining a boundary for ourselves to say, no, this is what it means to be Christian, period. And we're going to resist all of these other influences that are trying to pressure us to go a different direction. Hmm. Here's another Orwell. Uh, Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Does this explain the confusion that we are in from the news reports, the media, and the culture who through pseudo-journalism, advertising, music, broadcasts and podcasts, books, and cinema, all those choices that we have, maybe expand coverage, but in a way dissects our brain at the same time and tries to reshape our worldview at the same time. Yeah, so I I think um, I'll I'll go to something like a Matthew 28, um, 18 through 20 on this. That's Jesus's great commission. And what he's encouraging the disciples to do is to go out and make more disciples. 
And to do that, he suggests that they do two things with these people. The first is to initiate them into the community through baptism. We need to see some sort of a commitment made to this way of life and really understanding um, how it is, you know, we're going to say, okay, I'm going to bury myself with Christ in baptism, and I'm going to commit to um, walking in a newness of life. That's sort of Romans 6, 4 mixed in there. The second part is learning to observe all Christ commanded. And so there's two components of discipleship always. It's the commitment and initiation that's often symbolic, and it is a learning of a way of life that an authority, in this case, in Christian um, circles, it's Christ, but it's a learning from an authority that is going to, in some way, shape, or form, empower a particular way of life. And so if we look at this quote and this idea through that lens, what I think we see is that the world is discipling us in a particular way of life. And this fracturing of our minds, this dissecting of the human brain and putting it back together is a a really clear picture of what happens in discipleship. It's just that when we're not being becoming disciples of Christ, we are becoming disciples of the world in some way, shape or form. We either conform to Christ or we conform to the world. And that's where I see um, Orwell having some interesting uh, ideas for Christian to think about. Because we are, in a lot of ways, being shaped by the world around us, and the world does not have a vested interest in making disciples for Jesus Christ. But we have to serve somebody, and that's, you know, Bob Dylan said it best, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, and it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody, right? That's right. Uh, You're listening to Useful to God. I'm Richard Beattie in Denver, and this is our weekly conversation with Dr. James Spencer, President of the D.L. Moody Center and Useful to God Ministries. James, we're looking at 1984, the George Orwell novel, with the latest and sometimes humorous trend in artificial intelligence. We keep on hearing how this is going to make our lives easier, and uh, we may be replaced by these robots. Uh, Is this an example of tearing our minds to pieces and then reshaping how we think? I actually think um, so uh, oftentimes, and this was something that was a little bit more popularized by uh, the gentleman who wrote, uh, Neil Postman, who wrote uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he actually contrasts 1984 with a, a book written by Aldous Huxley called Brave New World. And in Brave New World, what what's happening there is that um, people uh, opt for consumption, radical consumption. And they do not want their minds to be challenged. They just want to uh, sit and steep in the entertainment. They want constant sort of interaction with content. They're they're just sort of allowing their brains to you know, go to mush. A great picture of this was done in the uh, Disney movie, or I think it was a Pixar movie, uh, Wall-E, um, where basically all the humans are up in this spacecraft and they're all kind of fat and sassy. And they're just sitting there letting the robots take care of them. And so as we see what's going on with artificial intelligence, my big concern with it is that, um, number one, we're, you know, we aren't attending to the processes, the, the value of the processes that we go through. There is value to work. There's value to toil and effort. There's value to thinking through and actually sitting down and, you know, chat GPT is the big one right now. There's value in just sitting down and writing something out. Even if you never publish it or even finish it, that that 
that act of writing helps us to think more clearly. And so that's one of my concerns is that we're, we're giving up on process too easily and focusing far too much on outcomes. The other side of that is that, you know, we're, we're allowing words like efficiency and productivity to be wholly good things. Now, I'm not saying they're not good things. I think there's a degree of efficiency and productivity that we need to achieve. But at the same time, we need to question how much efficiency and productivity do we really need? And are we missing out on things like faithfulness, like effort, like stress, like tension, like conflict, all of these other words that aren't necessarily bad either? And so I think all of this needs to be sort of rethought and reshaped. And what we're really missing out on with artificial intelligence, in my mind, is a notion of the good. What is it that we're really aiming for with all of this? What is it? What sort of civilization are we really trying to create? And for Christians, you know, how do these things, how are they going to be influencing us to be more conformed to the image of Christ? We're not answering those questions. We're, we're sort of on the fringes thinking about them, but we're more excited about the functionality we're picking up, I think, than uh, really taking a step back and asking ourselves, you know, this is going to be a bane and a blessing. We, we see the blessings clearly. What are the, what are the, what are the limitations of this uh, technology? Wow. All right, we're gonna we're gonna switch a little bit to temptation uh, and Matthew four. Here we have Jesus in the desert. It's kind of a boot camp, and you know it's not unlike any other obstacle course. Like when we get up in the morning, uh, there's so many things that are bombarding us. Uh, Jesus is fasting forty days and forty nights, so you know he's got that fasting headache. He's got all, all those other things going on, and as usual. That's when the tempter shows up. What can we learn about imitating Jesus and how to resist that tempter? I think throughout this narrative and what I what I talk about in Christian resistance is that really the temptations are related to um, the devil trying to get Jesus to redefine what it means to be the son of God. And so one of the things that I think we can do to resist temptation is to deeply understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to really cultivate that identity, and to cultivate that identity um, outside of tempting situations, so that we're living this out when it's easy, so that when it gets hard, it's nowhere near as difficult for us to resist those temptations. And so as Jesus is out and he's, you know, he's doing the 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, um, the devil brings him like real temptations. Jesus was hungry. He probably didn't want to be in the desert anymore. You know, he's he's looking for all of these different things. He knows what's coming. The devil offers him the kingdoms of all the earth. Well, the son of God is going to inherit all those kingdoms, but there is a way that he needs to go about inheriting those. And the way that that Satan offers is not the way that Jesus knows he needs to do it. And so there's just something about that clarity and that crystal clarity that we need to get about our identity in Christ so that in the hard times and those, you know, after we've fasted for 40 days, we understand how to resist those temptations. 
Yeah. You know, in the in the few minutes that we have, uh, there is a denial that goes on in the culture and the world, even in the church sometimes, the, the denial of sin, that we're sinners, uh, that we're all, uh, and that we're all sinners. Uh, there is a second denial, and it is a second temptation, that evil doesn't exist, or that for the most part, the world is inherently good. Uh, you know, it's often said that Satan's perpetual and biggest lie is that he doesn't exist. How can we be useful to God if we deny Satan's existence and that people are inherently good? Well, it's going to be pretty difficult. Uh, I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you think about what it means to accept Christ, we accept him as Savior and Redeemer. We accept him as Lord. And all of that assumes a shift in relationship from the way we're living normally. And so if we look at conversion just as an act of moving from one state to another, we're moving from a state in which we don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. We chart our own course. We, we go our own way. Um, and, you know, we're, we're looking at this sort of moment where we don't have redemption. We don't have a Savior, not one that we recognize and are, are united with. In conversion, as we place our faith in Christ, part of what that means is not just, okay, I'll trust him as my Savior, good stuff, thanks, Jesus, now I'll live my own life my own way. It means when we put our faith in him, we're trusting his way of life. We're trusting not only all that he did for us and that he will, that, you know, his acts ultimately save us, we're also trusting that everything he did is the right way to do it. And what we see in the resurrection and the ascension and glorification is essentially a vindication of Christ's life. Is that at the end of this thing, when Jesus is crucified, you know, he he spends three days in the grave, and then God raises him up and glorifies him. And that is a demonstration that what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, what Jesus lived, how Jesus lived was all correct. And so as we place our faith in him, that is sort of then our new modus operandi. We we begin to imitate Christ, not because it's um, a command or a necessity or anything like that necessarily. It's not out of obligation so much. It's because we've come to realize that this is really the only way to live. Every other way pales in comparison to this way. So I think if we can't get our heads around that there, you know, that Satan exists, and that there are sort of evil powers that are encroaching on us to press us into service. Uh, and that, you know, we as people, it's not that we aren't, uh, we're never good, right? But um, that our relationship with God is fractured, right? I believe that when we see good in the world, um, what we're really seeing are the reflections of God's glory that are still there through a marred image of him. And at the same time, we're we're broken. We're not shining that light in the and we're not reflecting it as well as we could be. And so I think these are things that are pretty central to Christian faith. They're central to understanding what it means to transition from being a non-Christian to a Christian. And so we've got to get our heads around that and, and begin to understand that when we start to follow Christ, we're really following him. We're not just attaching ourselves to him to avoid hell. We're actually following him. Well, I knew that could be a two-part show as it is. <laughs> James, how can, how can people get involved with Useful to God Ministries? 
Look, we've got a, you know, we've got a great campaign coming up. This is our third year for the Go Dark Shine Bright campaign. Um, it's a campaign that is designed really to help Christians uh, begin to resist the world by taking a a fast from social media and this year from what we're calling voluntary media. Um, and that would be media like, um, you know, television shows or, you know, uh, news outlets or something like that, that are distracting to one's own personal spiritual growth. And so that's a great way to get involved. People can go to godarkshinebright.org and uh, and sign up for that campaign. It officially begins in May, but people can download the guide. There's a 10-day devotional in there, um, as well as a lot of other materials we've tried to put together this year to help people understand how media is influencing their minds. Uh, the other encouragement that I give folks is just to uh, pick up Christian Resistance. Um, Christian Resistance is a book that uh, I published earlier this year, and when they purchase Christian Resistance, uh, all the proceeds go to uh, the ministry. So it's uh, it's a way for people to not only get a book, <laughs> but also to support um, what we're doing at Useful to God Ministries and uh, and on this program. And so those two ways specifically um, are would be great for people to uh, participate in as they uh, as they. Um, look to go deeper with us. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'd love to hear from you. Go to usefultogod.org for resources and studies on how you could become useful to God. To get on the mailing list, please email us at usefultogod at gmail.com and we will send you the full schedule of broadcasts from Sound Century Audio Network and soon to come, the audiobook Useful to God, read by Dr. James Spencer. We, uh, we worked a, a, a full day on that, and uh, we had a good time. And then we'll also start working on a study that also accompanies uh, that audiobook as well. I'm looking forward to that, James. Yeah, me too. Um, and so those would be great ways coming up that people can get, get involved with us as well. So yeah, keep looking for that. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, and have a great day. This is Richard Beatty, and for Dr. James Spencer, have a wonderful week. <laughs>